our sermon this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 18. So if you have your Bible, open to 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 18. Uh, and if not, pull it out on your phone or your mobile device or something like that. The sermon is entitled, God's Gift of Grace and Our Response of Bold Faith and, and Love. This is, kinda, this is Paul's introductory um, you know, section in the book of 2 Timothy. Right? So it's kind of the, the section where he... Uh, you know, the theology that Paul deals with in the entire uh, book of 2 Timothy, chapters 2 and 3 and 4, they all kind of flow out of the foundation that he sets here in chapter 1, and specifically chapter 1, verses 3 through 18. So all of the exhortations, all of the commands, all of the encouragements that we're going to see uh, in the coming chapters, they flow from, from this one. So Paul's going to unpack some theology. He's going to uh, unpack how God has saved us from our sin, how God has drawn near to us in Christ, how God has sovereignly bar- brought the gospel into our lives, how because of Jesus we have life and immortality in the light of Christ rather than, rather than death and separation from God. All of that kind of gets unpacked. And then he's going to unpack how we are to respond, right? How we're to live, uh, how we're to repent of fear and timidity as Christians, how we are to, you know, live in the power of the Holy Spirit and boldly proclaim the gospel as we walk with Jesus together as, uh, as the church. So that's kind of where we're headed in 2, Corinthians, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 18. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going I'm to pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump right into it, and we'll kind of work our way right through it. We'll try to end by, end by noon, because we try to limit the amount of time that we all spend in the room together. It says uh, in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our God, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel of the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
and you well know all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would meet us here, that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would uh, help us this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit to meet us and to work deeply in our hearts. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so starting in verse 3, I thank you. Paul talking to Timothy, right? Whole book, Paul talking to Timothy. Uh, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. So Paul even kind of starts with like his spiritual lineage and his physical lineage kind of starting, kind of dropping a seed there. But he says, I'm remembering you, Timothy. I'm remembering uh, you in my prayers night and day. I, I, you know, this is his friend. This is the guy that he's mentoring. This is the guy that he has personally kind of installed into pastoral ministry. And he's saying, I love you and I remember you. Verse 4, I want to see you. Right, uh, being with you brings me joy. Being apart from you brings me sadness. I want to be. I want to be near you. And then in verse five, he gives some additional details, specifically what it is about Timothy that encourages Paul. I am reminded of your sincere faith. So it's not just that we, you know, like the same football team. It's not just that we have common interests. I, I am encouraged, specifically Timothy, that you're a Christian, that you believe the gospel, that you know Jesus, that you trust in Jesus, that you're walking with Jesus and discipling others to help them walk with, uh, walk with Jesus. Paul's in jail at this moment. So he is, uh, he's in chains, he's in jail, and a big part of what's getting him through day to day uh, is, is dwelling on these realities, that his good friend Timothy possesses a real and sincere faith deep in his heart. Now, uh, later in verses 9 and 10, Paul's going to kind of uh, outline and kind of unpack specifically what that means for, for Timothy to have a sincere faith. But for now, in verse 5, he, uh, he doesn't necessarily unpack all of the implications of the sincere faith. Rather, he drills down specifically on and talks specifically about how Timothy arrived at this sincere faith that he, that he has. It was a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice and now dwells in you. So Paul remembers that Timothy, Paul's encouraged by Timothy's faith. He remembers Timothy's faith and he also remembers and acknowledges that Timothy is a Christian because his mother shared the gospel with him. Timothy's grandmother shared the gospel with his mother in all likelihood, or maybe they became Christians together, and then the two of them together led Timothy to Christ. So, so alongside all of Timothy's you know, mother's motherly duties of raising this child and, and you know, teaching him to speak and write and you know, potty training him and teaching him all of, all of the duties that this mother had, she also took it upon herself to teach Timothy the gospel and to disciple him and to, to help him realize and kind of be, like instill in his brain to kind of train him up in the realities that, that Jesus died for him and that, that he had sin in his heart and he, because of his sin, Timothy was separated from the loving presence of God and he deserved punishment from God and, and Jesus came to, to live as a perfect to, to be a substitute, right? To live a perfect life in his place, to die a sacrificial death, to be raised from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death, and that, that if Timothy were to, were to trust in Jesus, he could be saved from death and reconciled to God. Eunice taught Timothy that. We're going to see later in this book, she taught him that when he was a little baby. He says, from infancy, you knew the scriptures. 
So, so as Timothy is a small child, his mother is, is teaching him the gospel, and, and the history of the world is irrevocably changed because of it. We're reading right now uh, you know, a letter sent from Paul to Timothy. Several of the books in the New Testament were written by Timothy or co-written by, by Timothy. So there are people, I mean us, right? We read the words of Timothy today, 2,000 years later, and those words were kind of born out of a theological foundation that Timothy got from his, from his mother when he was a child. Paul Paul is is quick to remind Timothy that he's a Christian because of his mother. Paul is quick to extol the the value and the dignity of of motherhood and and the ministry that mothers have with their their children, right? Ministry that often feels underappreciated or that often feels as if it's going unnoticed, right? Mothers, uh, a lot of the work of a mother, no one is watching, no one notices, no one seems to care, it looks like it has no significance in the kingdom whatsoever. You know, how does it really, how can you quantify the difference that you're making for, for the kingdom when a small child, ages three, four, five, six, right, uh, knows a little bit more about God and the gospel one day versus uh, another, another day? But according to Paul, it's incredibly valuable. It's valuable to Timothy. Timothy's ministry is valuable to God and to the kingdom of God, which means that Eunice's ministry to Timothy when he was a child was incredibly valuable. Some of the most vital and most important ministries that any human being could ever do in the moment seem mundane or they seem inconsequential or they seem like no one notices or nobody values it or nobody cares. And Paul exhorts Timothy uh, that, that... his, his, his faith is an encouragement to Paul, and his faith is there because of the faithful ministry of his mother and his grandmother. And then here, Timothy, is how you're to respond. Verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Right? You, you have this faith because of something that someone else did. You have this faith because Jesus died for you to save you. You have this faith because your mother taught you the gospel. You have this faith because the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart and gave you a newfound capacity to have it. All of that happens apart from anything that you did. And at the same time, I want you to fan this faith into flame, right? You have this flicker of faith, this burning ember, and now I want you, Timothy, to take it and run with it. I want you to actively expel effort and actually pursue spiritual growth, right? Practice the spiritual disciplines. You know, we become a Christian by grace. We grow as Christians by grace, but grace is not necessarily opposed to or mutually exclusive from effort, real genuine effort that we use to work and grow, Read your Bible, spend time in prayer, attend church, cultivate relationships with other believers, right? Engage with other believers in ways that are edifying. Read good books, have meaningful conversations, right? Your salvation is of grace, God saves you, God keeps you, God grows you, and it takes effort on your part. So work hard, put forth effort, and grow and fan your faith into this roaring flame, right? Take it from this little flicker into a roaring flame. And here's how that's possible. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So it might sound like a tall order. It might sound like it's beyond your capacity to actually, uh, you know, take part in, in growing your faith and, and fanning your faith into flame. That might seem like it's, it's beyond what you are able to do. And frankly, before you became a Christian, it was beyond what you were able to do, right? And your, your old self, your old nature, 
right? You didn't, but, but you no longer are, are characterized by that. You're no longer characterized by your flesh and your sinful nature and your old habits and your old ways. Now the Holy Spirit has come into your life. He's given you a new heart. He's given you supernatural power. He's helped you to love your neighbor, even when it's difficult to love your neighbor. He's given you the capacity to, you know, uh, overcome sin and selfishness when it goes against what you would normally naturally do. The Holy Spirit is empowering you to live the godly Christian life. So work hard to fan this faith into flame, but work in the power of the Holy Spirit instead of in your own power. Now, starting in verse 8, Paul uh, starts, essentially it's a really big sentence. In fact, the sen- this whole page is all one sentence and it bleeds onto the next page. I think it goes all the way to verse 12. All one big kind of uh, sentence. But, uh, I mean, essentially you can look at verse 8, look at verse 12, and look at verse 13 kind of in quick succession and see the overarching outline of this paragraph. Uh, verse 8, Paul says, don't be ashamed. So verses 8 through 12 are going to say a lot of things, but they all kind of fall under the rubric of Paul, or of Timothy, I'm Paul and I don't want you to be ashamed. I want you to not be ashamed. That's verses 8 through 12. Verses, verse 12, Paul says, I am not ashamed. So you can look down your Bible or we can click over to the next slide. I personally am not ashamed. So, so 8 through 12, uh, Timothy, you don't be ashamed. Verse 12, I am not ashamed. And then verse 13, follow my example, right? If I'm not ashamed, and I don't want you to be ashamed, then the way that you cannot be ashamed is by looking at me, looking at my life, and following my example, following the pattern that I set. So we'll just work through verses 8 through 12 uh, first and then kind of uh, go, go from there. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. So Timothy, don't be ashamed of God. Don't be ashamed of who God is. Don't be ashamed to identify with God. Don't be ashamed to, to be known as, to have your reputation be linked with who God is and who Christ is, which kind of sounds like a given. God is big. God is strong. God is glorious. God's awesome. Who wouldn't want? To, who would not want to be known as being on God's team? But it wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion in the first century, right? Right. Jesus's stock has been all over the. You know, has been high and been low at various points throughout church history. But in the first century, it was like it was low. It was. It was the, it's like IPO, right? It was like it had just been introduced and no one had bought stock yet. So it was really loath. And so Timothy, Paul is saying, don't be, right? Because, so here's what Jesus' reputation was in the first century. He essentially was a man who was executed by the state uh, for the crimes of treason that he likely was, was committing because he was mentally ill. Right, is essentially kind of how Jesus was, was seen and how people were experiencing him. Was a, was a crazy, so, so to identify with Jesus, to not be ashamed of Jesus means you plant your flag in the ground and say, that's my king, that's my master, that's my Lord, is that crazy person who everyone essentially universally recognized as a lunatic and as a, a menace to society, and we killed him. He was so bad that we killed him, I'm on his team. That's my person that I am with. A lot of people were embarrassed to be identified with Jesus, or they were afraid for their own safety or their own reputation to be identified with Jesus. Paul says, don't be embarrassed by Jesus, even though it might not be expedient to believe in him or to identify with him. But not just Jesus, also don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. So Paul was, had equally low stock. 
right? Paul was, uh, Paul was in jail right now, awaiting execution that was inching closer day by day. Paul says, don't be ashamed of Jesus, don't be ashamed of me, but rather I want you to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Timothy, I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you, Timothy, to suffer with me, suffer with Jesus. Jesus suffered on the cross, I'm suffering in prison, and the two of us are inviting you to come join us and suffer with us. Which doesn't seem like a great invitation, but that's exactly what it's recognized as in Scripture. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are preaching the gospel, and the authorities come and arrest them. And they, they beat them up, and they tell them to stop. They're like, stop preaching the gospel, or we will we'll continue beating you. And as soon as they're let go, they turn to one another, and they exchange high fives. And they, they rejoice. They, they, they rejoice. The, the exact language in Acts 5 is they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. So suffering and experiencing physical pain and, and uh, persecution, they considered that an honor. That was, it's, it's one thing to be saved by Jesus, that's great. It's another thing to represent Jesus to others, that's great. But, but we actually consider it an honor and a privilege to suffer for Jesus. And that's what Paul is inviting Timothy to do here in 1 Timothy. Come suffer with us, suffer with me, and suffer with Jesus. And so what we're going to see in verses 8 through 12 is that it's one big long sentence, and each each, it's almost like the last word or the last clause triggers the next clause one after the other. So he'll have an idea and he'll have a thought, and then kind of the last word or the last idea, that, that, there will be a comment, and that'll trigger an explanatory clause or an explanatory phrase, and then that idea that's there is going to trigger, it's like a dominoes. That, that idea is going to trigger the next one, which will trigger the next one, which will trigger the next one. So it says, don't be ashamed of me, uh, but instead share with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Right? So suffer with us because God has called us to a holy calling. Right? God has saved us from sin and death and wrath. And God has called us to a new life of holiness and godliness where we live for him and where we love our neighbor. Right? So God has called us to this, how, this holy calling. Now, now, the next phrase explains holy calling. How did that happen? How did it come about? Not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace. We didn't do it. We didn't earn it. We can't claim credit for it. It's not our place to brag about it or boast about it. It was God's unmerited favor and his grace. We didn't achieve our salvation, but rather we received our, our salvation. And how, then, did God extend this grace and this unmerited favor to us? That triggers the next phrase, which explains, God extended this grace to us, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So before you were born, before the universe had ever even been called into existence, before time itself started, you know, before some succession of moments that we're in now ever started, before time was even a thing, God in Christ set his eyes on his people, on the church. He decided that he would save them. He decided that he would come to them and die for them so that they could be reconciled to him. So Jesus, uh, God gave us his grace in Christ before the ages began, but that's when it started, that's when it was inaugurated, that's when it kind of was, it began, but ultimately it came to fruition and it was completely and totally manifested and executed later, verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. So it was 
already began before the ages began, but it is not yet manifested until Jesus came and lived and died for sinners to save them from their, their sin. So that's how Jesus, that's how God extends grace to sinners through the mercy of Christ, through the person and work of Christ, which was inaugurated before the world began, but was executed and manifested in time and space when Jesus came. And what exactly did Jesus do? It triggers the next clause that explains Jesus abolished death, right? Death came as a result of sin. Humanity sinned, rebelled against God. They were kicked out of the garden. They were removed from God's presence. They were, they were destined to experience uh, wrath and, and, and punishment forever and ever. But instead of that, Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So instead of eternity, uh, uh, you know, in, eternal death in hell, Jesus saves us so that we can enjoy eternal life with him in heaven under his rule, right? Living, with, living under his benevolent reign through the glory of the gospel, Right? And so, so brought to life through the gospel, and then verse 11 explains the phrase gospel, this gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. So, so this is the gospel, Timothy, this, this gospel of Jesus coming to us, saving us from our sin, right? giving us life where we were destined for death, giving us light when we were in darkness. This gospel of Jesus is what I've built my life around. It's what, I've, it's, it's what I'm giving my life for. Everything I do serves the purposes of and the advancement of this gospel. Right? I, I'm on the, the, this path. I'm on the same path and the same trajectory and the same mission that your mother and that your grandmother were on. They were, they were mothering and shepherding and discipling you so that you could hear the gospel and be reconciled to God. And I am laboring and preaching and evangelizing and discipling so that other people can hear the gospel and be reconciled to God. And that work, the work of, of preaching and teaching and ministry, verse 12, is why I suffer as I do. So that's why I'm in jail, Timothy. That's why I've been, you know, uh, that's why I've been beaten to death. That's why I've been stoned and shipwrecked and robbed and abandoned and why I'm starving at times and go through sleepless nights and almost die from exposure to the cold. All of the suffering that I do is all for the sake of the gospel. It's also that the gospel can be spread throughout the, the earth. And that is one sentence. Right? Verse 8 all the way down here through verse 12 is one big sentence, which is basically Paul saying, Timothy, do not be ashamed. Right? Here's the gospel. Here's the glory of God. Don't be ashamed of it. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. Exalt in it. And, and, and be bold and proclaim it. But do not be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of Jesus because he has saved you by his grace. And in verse 12, he takes a turn, right? It's no longer, Timothy, don't you be ashamed of the gospel. Now it's, but I am not ashamed of the gospel because I know who I've believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard me until the day that has been entrusted to me. So Paul says, Timothy, I'm telling you not to be ashamed, but I'm saying if anyone has the right to be ashamed of the gospel, it's me. Right, if, if anyone would be, would be justified in being ashamed of the gospel, of being ashamed of Jesus, it would be me. Right? My life was turned upside down. My life was shaken 
violently like a snow globe. I, I was in, I was the top of my class in Hebrew Pharisee school. I was, you know, on my way to a healthy, wealthy, prominent, impressive career. And Jesus saved me. And now I'm a homeless, poor, broke missionary in jail about to be executed. Like I went from this life up here to this life down here, but even because of that, I'm not ashamed. Even in light of all of that, all of the violence that Jesus has done to my life, I'm not ashamed of him because I know him. I'm not ashamed of Jesus because I know who it is that I've believed in, and I'm convinced that he is able not only to save me, but to keep me. I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Jesus has entrusted to me faith and hope and belief in the gospel. Jesus has entrusted that to me. He's kind of put it in my heart as a a down payment, as collateral, and Jesus will not lose that deposit, that down payment. Jesus will guard it. He will guard that which has been entrusted to me. I know Jesus, and I love him, and I trust him, and so I am not going to be ashamed of him. So you don't be ashamed, verses 8 and following. I am not ashamed, verse 12. And if you want to know how to not be ashamed, then verse 13, follow the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Right? So, so Timothy, look at my life. Use it as an example. Use it as a pattern. Use it as a template. Right? Timothy, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done myself. I haven't asked you. I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not currently doing myself. So follow the example of my life so that you can walk with God and glorify Him. Is that something that you're comfortable saying to people around you in your life? To look at my life and follow the example of my life. Would you be comfortable saying to people around you, I want you to observe my life, look at my life, watch my life, go through my life with a fine-tooth comb, right? Look at, look at the choices that I make, look at the language that I use, put a, put a dashboard cam in my car, right? Look at my browser history. Like, I want you to look at my life, everything about me, I want you to look at it and study it because I practice what I preach, right? Look at how I pray. Look at how I study my Bible. Look at how I love my neighbor. Look at how I persevere through trials and suffering. Look at how I trust God even when it's difficult. Can you, in good conscience, say to people around you, look at my life and use it as a template. Use it as an example for how you should live your life. Or are there areas in your life where you'd prefer that people not observe you too closely, where you'd prefer that people not look to you as an example. God wants us to proclaim the gospel boldly to those people around us, but he wants us to start by walking with him and living for him and glorifying him, trusting him and obeying him in our lives, cultivating a real relationship with him, because then and only then can we actually call people to faith in Christ with any real credibility. Right? If our lives are not exemplary, if our lives are not uh, up to the standard of being a, a, a template for other people to look at and follow, then we lose credibility when we call them to faith in Christ. But even with that being the case, 
even with this high bar of, of living an exemplary moral life, leading, leading an exemplary spiritual life, Paul still remembers, he still reminds Timothy that this is all born out of the power of the Holy Spirit, right? By, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. So walk with God, follow my example, but do so by living in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you, he lives in your heart, he's regenerated your heart, he's given you new desires, he is continually and progressively making you more like Jesus, he's put that down payment of faith into your heart, he's going to guard it, he's not going to lose the deposit that he entrusted to you, the Holy Spirit's going to see to it that that down payment stays intact, so walk with Jesus, cultivate a relationship with him, follow my example through the power power of the Holy Spirit. That's verses 8 through uh, 14, right? Uh, Verse 8 and following, Timothy, don't you be ashamed. Verse 12, I'm not ashamed. And then verse 13, follow my example in not being ashamed. Then in verses 15 through 17, Paul turns his attention to other people, right? away from Paul, away from Timothy, away from their relationship and their experiences and to other people. You are well aware, Timothy, you know full well, you are well aware who are in a- that those who are in Asia turned away from me. I'm all alone. Everyone's abandoned me. Everyone's deserted me. Right? Everyone saw me get arrested. They wanted nothing to do with me. They didn't want to get arrested with me. They didn't want the, the stink of my arrest to get on them among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. We don't know really much about these two guys at all. This is the only place they're mentioned in the whole Bible. <clears throat> so we don't know who they are, what they were doing, how exactly they abandoned Paul. Maybe they were partners in ministry. They were fellow gospel you know, evangelists or, or pastors or missionaries that they abandoned Paul. And maybe, maybe they were uh, converts. Maybe they were people that Paul led to the Lord and that they were members in, in a church that he planted, and they abandoned him. Maybe, maybe they were you know, financial supporters. Maybe they were giving money so that uh, they could fund Paul's ministry, so that he could proclaim uh, the gospel. We don't know. We don't know who they were, what they were doing, but whatever it was that they were doing, they stopped, and they left him. They deserted him. They ghosted him. Right? They stopped taking his calls, and they just said, we, we're not going to put ourselves and our reputations and our resources at risk because Paul has gotten himself into trouble. And they left him, and they walked away. They deserted him. So Paul says, you know, everyone in Asia has left me, including these two guys. And then here's a counterexample on the other side. But may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, because he has often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. Phagellus and Hermogenes deserted Paul. They were ashamed of Paul. They wanted nothing to do with Paul. Onesephorus stayed. He was loyal. He was faithful. He was not ashamed when everyone else was ashamed. Verse 17, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, and he failed me. So, he did, so Onesephorus did not simply not abandon Paul. 
Like he didn't, he didn't just passively decide not to, like, like leaving is active, staying is passive, so I'm just going to decide not to leave. No, he actively decided, he pursued, he pressed in, and actively sought Paul out. He pursued Paul, he looked for him, he searched for him, he stopped at nothing to find Paul so that he could encourage Paul and refresh Paul and meet Paul's needs and help Paul and encourage Paul. <clears throat> Verse 18, may the Lord grant Onesephorus that he may find mercy from the Lord on that day, because you well know all the service that Onesephorus rendered to us at Ephesus. Here's the big idea with verses 15 through 18. Paul is saying that life in this fallen world, and particularly life in relationships with other people, is complicated, and it's messy. And it's full of surprises, and you don't know what's coming. Navigating through relationships with people is difficult. Sometimes it's awesome. Sometimes it's awesome like Onesephorus, right? People love you. They encourage you. They stay with you. They stick by your side. They're faithful to you. They are a friend to the end. And when that happens, do like Paul does, and rejoice, and be grateful, right? And like, like talk about how great of a friend they are, and encourage others because of this person's friendship, Don't take it for granted. Be grateful. Enjoy their friendship and be a good friend back to them. Right? Thank God for his grace in your life to give you good friends who are faithful and loyal. Sometimes your friends aren't like that. Sometimes your friends are like Figelis and Hermogenes. Sometimes they leave you. And sometimes when they leave you, it's painful. Sometimes they abandon you. They reject you, they slander you, they take advantage of you, they hurt you, they leave you wounded. But notice what Paul does, like look how much real estate is, is dedicated to Onesephorus and his gratefulness for Onesephorus and his celebrating the grace of God in Onesephorus. And look how much real estate is dedicated to Figelis and Hermod. You'd think that it'd be twice as much because it's two guys versus one, but it's the opposite. Right? One small, matter-of-fact, informative sentence. Here's these two guys. Here's what they did. He doesn't indulge in you know, berating them. He doesn't, uh, you know, unhel- he doesn't kind of lean into gossip and slander. They're jerks and idiots. I hate them. I don't want to see them ever again. If I do, I want to punch them. Right? I hope something bad happens to them to get back at them for what they have done to me. I'm going to hold a grudge and resent them until you know, X, Y, and Z happens. None of that. Paul states matter-of-factly that Phagellus and Hermogenes left him, and then he doesn't dwell on it, and he doesn't rehearse it in his head, and he doesn't you know, allow his sinful nature to just continue to mull over and over and over how he's been sinned against, and how he wants revenge, and how he uh, resents these two people. He does that with Onesephorus. He allows his mind to dwell on this brother and his friendship and how he served Paul and how Paul is grateful for him. But with Phagellus and Hermogenes, he acknowledges that he's been sinned against, right? So you don't have to deny that. You don't have to pretend like when someone sins against you, you don't pretend like it didn't happen. You acknowledge that you've been sinned against and then you forgive them and you move on, right? You, you, you forgive them and you give them space to repent and, and come back to you. When you, have, when you have good, godly, faithful, encouraging friends, you enjoy it, you're grateful for it, you reciprocate by being a good friend back to them, and when you're sinned against, when you're abandoned, when you're hurt, 
You forgive. You don't hold a grudge. You don't seek revenge. You don't become bitter or resentful or spiteful. You forgive, and then you maintain a posture where you will be ready to reconcile if and when they repent and come back and ask for your forgiveness. So First Timothy, oh, I'm sorry, Second Timothy <clears throat> chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. I, Paul, am grateful for you. I'm grateful for your salvation. I'm grateful that you're a Christian. I'm grateful for your sincere faith. I'm grateful that your mother and grandmother taught you the gospel. Verses 5 through 14, now that Jesus has saved you, I want you to respond appropriately. I want you to be bold in faith and love. I want you to practice the spiritual disciplines. I want you to proclaim the gospel. I want you to follow my example of not being ashamed and walking in with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then verses 15 through 18, relationships are complicated. So when you have good friends who are faithful, enjoy them and thank God for them. And when you have bad friends who reject you and hurt you, forgive them and be kind to them and be ready to reconcile with them. Frankly, just like Jesus did for you, right? Jesus forgive you when you sinned against him. Jesus wants you to forgive others when they sin against you. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we, we thank you, Lord, that we get to be Christians. Right? That, we, that we have this incredible privilege that we, frankly, that we all too often take for granted. Lord, that we, we could have easily been born into... Uh, an unreached people group. We could have easily been born somewhere where no one knows the gospel. We could have lived a different life where we would have never heard the gospel. You could have orchestrated our lives, Father, in such a way that we would have never come to Christ. And yet, by your grace, by your unmerited favor, we get to have a relationship with Jesus. We get to have our sins forgiven. We get to enjoy eternal life with God. We get to uh, experience your glorious grace. And we thank you. And we pray, Lord, that we could respond rightly to it by being bold and by being unashamed, and by being faithful to the gospel, by loving God and by loving others. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.